0: You're listening to The Movement, a Holy Family School of Faith podcast. Welcome to The Movement. My name is Chloe Langer, and I'm the digital media publisher here at Holy Family School of Faith. Today, we're launching a brand new series called Why Jesus? And it's a conversation led by Sebastian D'Amico, an instructor here at Holy Family School of Faith. We're going to be answering the big question, why do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And what makes Jesus unique among all the founders of world religions? Can we believe him when he claims that he's God? Join us for this series on apologetics as we equip you to discover the answers to those questions and share them with others through friendship, conversation, and the rosary. And if you like what you hear with this conversation with Sebastian, head over to our Holy Family School of Faith YouTube channel and check out The Table, Conversations on Catholic Education. And on that channel, you'll be able to explore what we mean when we say a Catholic education and explore that topic with Holy Family School of Faith and our school's team, which is led by Sebastian. And you can find a link to our YouTube channel in today's show notes.
1: The, the story of this course came for me. I was, gosh, I, I grew up in Topeka and I went to Catholic schools and I really needed, I really lacked people that could give me robust answers to these questions. And it was kind of always in the back of my mind, how can I get this for myself? And then I encountered some people that, that gave it to me. And then God called me to be a high school teacher, a high school theology teacher. And I got to I got the privilege of getting to put together a course to, for high schoolers. And I just wrote all my own questions into the course because these are the <laughs> questions I had. And this course, and I got to dialogue with a, a good friend of mine, a good friend of mine named John Mark, Dr. John Mark Miravalli, who teaches out at Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Um, brilliant brilliant mind um, and and scholar, and he wrote a book, which some of you have, called Why God, Why Jesus, Why the Catholic Church, and I got to kind of work in tandem with him to build this course, and that's what I get to share with you guys today. Um, We're going to be going over why Jesus, why do we believe in Jesus, but if you would join me um, in prayer, and we'll get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's Call to mind that we are being held in existence by a God who who loves us more than we love ourselves. Heavenly Father, in whom we live, move, and have our being, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of who you are, for the gift of your holy name, for the gift of your son, for the gift of his body, his blood, for the gift of his church, his spouse, for the gift of your mother, our lady, the gift of our faith, for the gift of the papacy, for the gift of the priesthood and the laity. And we ask you to bless our time together and be with those that we care about most, maybe those that we most desperately wish uh, we could share this message with. And we know that everything is in your hands and in your time. With your will and your spirit, these things can happen. And we submit to that today as we pray the prayer that you taught us, our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our
2: trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against against us. And lead us not into temptation,
3: but deliver us from evil.
1: Mary, Mother of the Incarnate Word, pray for us. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, today before we jump into um, today's topic, going to be what makes what makes Jesus different from all the other f- founders. Um, I want to do a little basic explanation of what apologetics is and why why we're doing this and what's its proper place. Um, apologetics doesn't mean giving apologies um, for what we believe. Apologetics means giving the reasons. For what we believe. And I, I'm I feel very strongly, and it's not actually my feelings matter little. Um, scripture tells us very strongly it's important to be able to do this. Um, if we're, and we're always growing in our capacity to be able to share the faith. But to, to be able to give an account for the hope that is inside of me, to give an account for the hope that's inside of me is actually a commandment from our first Pope. <laughs> That's in 1 Peter um, chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Uh, this verse, I, I think it's so, so compelling for me to, to consider. These are words of our first pope. To the, to the entire church. That, by itself, should be reason for anyone to, to, to listen, as if we didn't need another reason to listen to scripture. I want to tell you a story today. Um, I was thinking of this as I was preparing for this morning. It actually occurred to me earlier this week. And I think it illustrates this, and it, I think it illustrates the, the proper emphasis of apologetics. And I think we always have to go back and repeat these things. But This is my story. I was uh, privileged to be part of a, a mission that was reaching out to people who um, are of a different nationality and they are going, people that weren't coming to church regularly. So we did this nifty thing where we went to people's homes and we asked the, uh, the, the homeowner or the, home, the host to invite as many people as they could uh, and people that don't normally come to church. And so we went to these home visits and we, we visited them and then we invited them to the church for a, a small mission. There was a small talk, and then we broke up into small groups and just had them listen to what they heard. And I got to to sit into one of these small groups with some of the people on my team, um, and we were listening to this woman with her daughter. The, her daughter is, is a grown woman, and, and the mother um, is, is, is elderly, and she was saying, we were asking them what they were thinking. You could tell they were a little a bit, little bit quieter. And she said, you know, to be honest, we haven't come to a Catholic church in about 20 years. Um, I was like, "That's thank you so much for telling me. What brought you here tonight? And they said, well, you know, we just got invited. But that was beautiful. <laughs> First of all, how powerful the power would imitate a personal It wasn't like, it wasn't a bulletin blast. It was someone invited me personally. And so I'm here. And you could tell they weren't even sure that they wanted to be there, but they were there anyway. Beautiful. Um, And we asked, well, why? tell us, if you don't mind me asking, why haven't you been to church in 20 years? And they said, well, it really started when my dad died and the the church wouldn't take care of him and they didn't bury him. I don't know the rest of the story that was behind all of that. Um, But you could tell it was a pretty heartfelt pain. Um, and one of the members of my team launched into a tirade of why the Catholic Church is the one true church. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Like, he was quoting scripture right and left, and, you could, and he had it memorized. Like, he, you can tell he wasn't, like, he wasn't just studying this beforehand. This is stuff that he had internalized to the point of, go, tell me why the church is what it is. And he could go. And he totally missed the mark. He totally missed the mark because this, this woman was sharing her life and all he could see was where she was wrong. And, and I think there's something really profound in this. Um, first of all, it's really commendable that he has studied that much. To this, that's why we're here is to study it to the point, to continue the study so that when I'm in that situation and those questions are asked of me, I can give an account for the hope that is in me. But in that sense, it's also, it has to be second to the the art of listening and and really listening and approaching the person that's in front of us. Um, In other words, the reason we're talking about these things is not so that we can go blast this in someone's face. It's so that we can put as many tools in our toolbox that if the questions come up as we're listening, we can have a conversation about those things. But I think that's an excellent example of, of the natural human tendency to defend the faith
0: in a way that's not gentle and not
1: reverent. right? And I thought that was worth, worth sharing with you guys. Um, maybe because you also have had experiences with that. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of an apologetic like that. Um, maybe we've been on the giving end of a, receive, of, of, of a, of a defense like that and it, the people shut down immediately. It's something much more delicate than that. That, nonetheless, it still means we, we need to know this for this reason. Uh, there's a, you know, you can think of all the different world religions, let's say, you have Buddhism, you have Zoroastrianism, you could have um, all these different religions. Religions are trying to get to God in some way, shape, or form. And that's important. Like, we recognize this. But the thing that makes Christianity different is that it's where God himself comes down and speaks to us in the first person. This is a fundamental difference about Christianity. It means it comes from God first. It doesn't bubble up from the inside. And that's that's important because if someone is going to have faith, they're gonna have to hear what God has said. I'll repeat that, If, if someone's gonna have faith, it's not just going to bubble up from the inside. It has to... It has They're going to have to encounter what God is saying. And because of that, being able to articulate the faith is not just helpful, it's necessary. It's really necessary. Now, that again, it doesn't mean that mm-hmm. we just ram it down people's throats, but this is the tension that we're in. Uh, we have to be Listeners first. But we also have to be able to share
3: what God has said because that's where faith comes from. It comes from what's heard, Saint Paul says. Well, yeah. I think I think the, uh, the maybe the slight difference between the first scenario we spoke about. Yeah. And another way, is I think we're a witness more than anything, and that's what, where our faith comes from. Right. you yeah, think, think about it. Yes. They witnessed it to us via the scriptures. I mean, it was given to us through yep. the Holy Spirit. But being a witness means uh, this is what has changed me yeah. beyond something that's incredible that I really couldn't do myself. And I'm excited about it. And yeah. are you interested? Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and that last question is beautiful, because are you interested? is it our way of saying, are you open to hearing it? Yeah. Right? There's, no, there's nothing more off-putting than hearing deep information about questions you never asked. Right. Yeah. Isn't that why physics class was so painful for some of us? <laughs> <laughs> not why like history class was so painful. Or that's the difference between a good f- physics professor and, a, and, a, and, a, and an average one, is that the, physics, the good one could make you curious and you wanted to hear it. And that made all the difference. <laughs> similar that question, are you interested? How can we uncover your interest? That's beautiful. Always, 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 always start with what God has done first. Because that's actually, first of all, it's more correct. Uh, We do not choose God. He holds us in existence first. And then he gives us Freedom, and then we choose. You see what I mean? You have to go back deeper into this, the narrative, and and the the reason this is so important is because it's God is never doing what you expect. We never expect God to have come down and become a, a fetus and a baby. That just as cliche as that sounds, Christmas is just not what you would expect from a God. Baby. Um, you wouldn't expect him to come knocking on your door gently. You wouldn't expect him to come gathering sinners and eating with them. That's important. So that that one gosh, that's that's just a nugget that's changed my life as a teacher and as, as a Christian. I and mean, to kind of let that soak into everything. So that said, let's let's begin our conversation about what makes. Um, what makes Jesus so unique? Um, these chapters, by the way, um, you'll notice this is our first talk, but it's labeled Chapter Four. What makes what's so special about Jesus? It's because it's the fourth chapter from that book. Um, Why God? Why Jesus? Why the Catholic Church? Um, and so today we're gonna we're gonna talk about what makes Jesus unique, and we're gonna talk about um, four. Three differences, really. Three differences about Jesus and all the other world religious founders. In your average comparative religions class, a class where you're comparing different religions, you'll run, at at the -the run-of-the-mill college, um, Jesus Christ will be presented in a lineup of all the major religious founders. He'll be there with the likes of Zoroaster, Buddha, Socrates, Confucius, Mohammed, Joseph Smith, and maybe Martin Luther. And the similarities between these people will be emphasized. They are all persons of strong character who present a worldview and preach a moral system. Many suffered for their beliefs, and of them, of and of them, all of them, urged people everywhere to unite in serving a higher cause. The problem is, emphasizing the similarities is sometimes more misleading than emphasizing the dissimilarities. C. S. Lewis points out. Milk and urine are similar in that they both come from a cow, but you really wouldn't wouldn't want to make too much of that similarity when the differences are so much more striking and more important. Um, they, it is very blunt, and you have to be, you have to be cautious with how you share that quote, but because obviously we're not we're not into trying to deprecate uh, or or pick a fight, but but the difference the difference is still as an analogy, it's still good because. The, our culture wants to say Jesus and everyone else is really all saying the same thing. And that's just not true. It's really not true. The people that, that say that, sadly, it, I think it comes from not knowing very much about Jesus or what he actually said. And it also comes from a certain amount of ignorance of the other religions as well. It's actually not fair to anyone in the room and that's so so understanding these distinctions is important what are these dis, these differences what sets them apart number 1 jesus is foretold and anticipated number 2 jesus worked public miracles and number 3 jesus said that he was god these are actually they're fairly simple really we we knew that he was coming he did miraculous things, and he said he was God. Those are three very distinct elements of who Jesus is. So let's, let's talk about them each in turn. Number one, uh, Jesus is anticipated. The, the class I get to teach these days, and one of my favorite classes, is I get to teach salvation history. I get to teach Old and New Testament to freshmen. And the reason it is so, one of the reasons it is so much fun. Is because you get to walk people through all these events in history um, that they may have some more or less knowledge of you get to teach them and then you get to show them how all of them point to Jesus so if some of you I've had your children in class they will know this drawing very very well Um, this is a timeline this section in the middle that symbol right there is the Chi-Rho. It's the first two letters of the, of the name Christ in Greek, so it's the time that Jesus came on Earth. And then this is the timeline. This would be the end of time, and we live somewhere somewhere here. Um, and we start going through the Old Testament, and we start talking about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abram and Moses and David and Solomon and Josiah and the Maccabees. And it, every turn, you know and you take this very slowly, right? But you take you, you examine this thread, and you eventually show how it's connected to Jesus, that God was using history to tell us about himself. And when you start seeing the, the whole tapestry, so to speak, what you end up seeing is this incredible uh, this pattern, pattern in all of history, and it is breathtaking. And without fail, without fail, students will learn a little bit about Abraham and and Isaac and Jesus, and people will say, I think everyone needs to know this. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I think everyone needs to know this too. This is amazing. And this, by the way, this is how St. Paul would begin to teach people about Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee before he was a Christian. He was a very well-educated Jewish man. He knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, and he knew them like the back of his hand. And he would run around the Roman Empire, wherever he got kicked out of a town or when it was time for the Holy Spirit told to move, he would take the Roman highways, which were very convenient, thanks be to God they were around, and he would go to a city, like say, Ephesus. And the first place he would go would be the Jewish synagogue. Why? Because the Jews are the ones that knew this story best. And Paul would essentially just do, you just connect the dots. And almost without, I mean, there's always exceptions in the preaching of the gospel, people that are receptive and not. But those were the first people that were primed to understand it. And that's, and that's what happened. And he changed hearts. And people were like, I can't believe. I can't, it's always been here. It's been right in front of us the entire time. And all of these prophecies, then give a compelling reason to believe that Jesus is who He says He was. So this is my plug: if you haven't studied Scripture uh, and, studied it, and studied it carefully, uh, I want to invite you to do that. And not just not just going to. It's one thing to pray and, and read Scripture; that is necessary. Please continue to do that. But I mean a study of how the Old Testament prefigures the New. And I'm thinking specifically of Bible studies like Jeff Cavins' Bible study of the Great Adventure Bible Timeline, or uh, School of Faith also has classes on, on Scripture. So those, if those things are new to you, um, I want to encourage you, and some of you I know have already studied that stuff, that's, that's really important. And to be able to be fluent in that is, is, very, is very helpful. Um, let's take a look at some of these prophecies that are in here. There's, John Mark does a great job of bullet pointing them. Some things that we're told, um, we were told how he would be born. This, I'm on the bottom of page five, by the way. Um, Isaiah 7 tells us that he would be born of a virgin. Uh, Micah tells us where he was going to be born, in Bethlehem. They told us how he was going to die, Isaiah 52. He was going to die an innocent death to atone for the sins of many and be whipped beforehand. And people were going to roll the dice for his clothes. He was going to be a descendant of David. That sounds pretty easy, but actually, Abraham Lincoln had four kids, and yet within a few years of his death, his line was wiped out. So it's pretty impressive that it was foretold in David's time that one of his descendants would be a universal king. And then, many centuries down the line, David to Jesus, the line from David to Jesus is still traceable. That's why... Matthew and Luke's gospel include genealogies. And we read them and we're like, oh, if we're a lector, we're like, please don't give me this reading. I don't want to try to pronounce these names. But to an ancient Jew, that was like breaking. That that would interrupt regularly scheduled programming on whatever TV show you were watching to tell you. No, this is we just found a, a line, a family tree that goes back to David. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, We were told of the geopolitical situation at the time when he would come. So there was even an expectation um, at the time of the Roman Empire, of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, that there was a Messiah coming. Daniel has two visions, one of beasts and the other one of statues with metals, the metals that they were made of. And each one it foretells the falling progression of empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And in the time of Rome, a great stone would, be, would fill the earth, and one like the Son of Man will come and be given an everlasting glory and dominion. Um, you'll recognize the phrase Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He speaks of this. He, he says the Son of Man will be betrayed. That's, those details are really important um, to people that are fluent in the Old Testament because they're, they're, he's revealing who he is all the time. It is worth mentioning at this point though that when they heard Son of Man none of them expected the Son of Man to be God himself. That was a new thing. When they heard Son of Man what they heard was oh, a king in the line of David who is going to restore our kingdom and our peace but they never expected that Person to be God Himself. So that that was that was totally. I feel, and that that gets to the third reason of why He's unique. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, also, in, interesting here. There's prophecy. There's more prophecies in Daniel, um, and it even tells us this the specific year to which He would be born. Um, this is this is a hidden little gem in the Old Testament, but. Daniel gives it within 490 years of when the Messiah was coming. So they, those Jews at that time, one of the reasons that the political situation was so volatile is because all the Jews were talking. They're like, ah, Daniel said 490 years, it must be now. It, it, we, we know, we figured the times, we know it's gotta be now. So there was a sense of people were saying, I'm the Messiah, and 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 that was a common thing. Um, and so people were saying, well, is that really the Messiah or is that just someone else? Or is that a false Messiah? And how do we know the real one when he gets here? And what's, how will we know he's, he's here? It gets to his miracles is the next thing. The other thing, though, that's really amazing that John Mark includes in here is that there's actually non-Jewish writings that give the forecast of the coming of the Messiah. In other words, other cultures had writers... Who anticipated the coming of the the King of the Jews? So, some of them um, are they're they're in bold in black. In Flavius Josephus, the great historian, has this to say in his Jewish War: What did the most to induce the Jews to start this war was an ambiguous oracle that was also found in their sacred writings about that time, one from their country should be governor of the habitable (coughs) earth. Um, That's another allusion to the Jewish literature. The next one, Suetonius, is another ancient secular historian and he writes in the life of Vespasian 289, there had been spread all over the Orient, the East, that an old established belief that it was fated that a time would come when for men coming from Judea would rule the whole world. Um, Tacitus in his histories says some few put a fearful meaning on these events but in most there was a firm there was a firm persuasion that in the ancient records of their priests was contained a prediction of how at this very time the east would grow was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire um, there's others from Aeschylus and Virgil. I'll leave them to your writing. But um, there's there's so many pieces of evidence that point to this. Maybe another way of putting it is the wise men that come from the East to venerate the child Jesus, they they were not Jewish, but they knew that something was afoot. That could only happen if, A, they had to have known something about the Jewish writings, but there there's also some... Feeling within themselves in their own culture that said this is worth investigating. Um, and that's, that's, not, that's not common knowledge um, for many people. Questions, comments, concerns about this first difference between Jesus and other religious founders? Yeah?
3: When you point out these differences, um, people still say, but they're still all worshiping the same God.
1: Mm.
3: How do you find that? Because
1: that's a good question. The question is if they're, if they're all worshiping, if they're all having these different religions, they're all worshiping the same God. Actually, the Jewish religion did a great job of answering that question for us because the Jews said, We're not worshiping the same God. Um, the book of Genesis, this is another very helpful piece of knowledge to, to tuck away. The book of Genesis is one of the most offensive books in the ancient world. We read it so much, we don't even think anything of it. But if you were to read that, if a Babylonian were to read the book of Genesis, what they would read is, in the beginning was the God of the Jews, and he created the sun, which the Babylonians worship, and the moon, which the Babylonians worship, and the sea, which the Babylonians worship, and these things were not God's. So the second that that you become Jewish, and this is why it's so important to know that Jesus was a Jew, is that he was already distinguishing this is not every other God. And this is why the Jews were so annoying to all the other cultures in the ancient world. Because the other religions said exactly what you said, Annette. Hey, aren't, can't we all just play fair? We're all worshiping the same God. And they're like, on their best days, sometimes the Jews said, yeah, you're right, we are doing that, and that got them into problems. But on their best days, they are like, Nope, Moses said no. We're not worshiping the same gods, you're worshiping demons. And they're like, Come on, you're getting so harsh, getting so worked up. And they said, No, you're worshiping demons. Our God is the true God. How do you know? Well, he he spoke to us. How do you know? How do you know that you have the right God? Well, he became a burning bush, and he spoke to this guy named Moses, and then he led us out of Egypt. Ah, it's wives' tales. That's the Egyptians. Go ask the people that were in Jericho that were ready to like run away. Like the, these, the, the Christian thing is, is very historical in that way. And the Jewish thing is really important in that. Does that, did that answer your question? I don't want to go into too much of a tirade on it, but it's a great question. Other comments, questions?
2: So who did the Jews think Jesus was?
1: They thought he was a prophet, but they didn't, the thing that really bothered them was his third, was his claim to be God. Um, let's, let's very, um, briefly kind of get, that'll be kind of our goal to answer that question. Let's look at the the next one. The second difference, and we'll do this one a little bit quicker, is that Jesus worked public miracles. If someone's going to claim to be God, you're going to want to see some identification. Can you prove to me that you are who you say you are? And his miracles are those things. We take those for granted. We hear them every single Sunday. Um, But there are some details about his miracles that are worth mentioning. And John Mark lists four of them um, on page seven, top of page seven. First of all, he never did a miracle for his own advantage. We take that for granted. We've never named one where a miracle made Jesus rich or they got him out out of a bind. They're always... Uh, When he was hungry, he didn't turn the bread, the stones, to bread. It was always so that others could eat. Secondly, he never did a private miracle. He never did a private miracle. In other words, it was never like um, Jesus went out into the sticks, and he got a, a group of people together with him, and they all came back telling stories about these miracles which no one had ever witnessed. He always healed people that everyone knew in this town. They all knew that that person was lame or sick or had leprosy. Maybe they weren't there to witness the actual miracle, but everyone knew that that something had changed. That's very different than, say, Joseph Smith, uh, who has accounts of of private miracles that no one ever saw and no one can ever testify. So his, his miracles are public. Even his enemies never denied his miracles. That's important. The, the Pharisees, you know, when they were trying to kill him, they never said, he claimed to do miracles that never happened. They, because they couldn't say that. They all knew, yeah, the blind man that was blind from birth, he started seeing after Jesus. Um, he never did a miracle to satisfy curiosity or public demand. And number four, he never did a miracle that was denied, even by his enemies. Even those who hated him had to admit his actions were supernatural. The only solution they could come up with is that he was doing these miracles with the help of Satan, which is why we hear them say, he casts out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. Beelzebub, how do they they translate that word? That's one of those words that they read on Sunday, and we're like, great, who cares? That matters a lot because it shows that even the enemies couldn't deny what was happening. The one exception, of course, to a miracle that they do deny is the resurrection, and we'll see that next week. All all we're going to do is talk about the resurrection. But these miracles are are public things. Um, Some people say, well, you know, they believed in miracles because they just didn't have science. Uh, and, And now that we know things about science, now... Now we're not as gullible, so if Jesus were to come now, we would never like believe that these things happened. That that is patently false. Um, people may not have had the technology they they do now back then, but they knew where babies come from. Um, and they know that it they people aren't born of a, a virgin, and they may understand modern medicine, but uh, now or they may not have understood modern medicine. But they know you don't go from not seeing to seeing with, with no explanation. That's actually a, a very um, backhanded insult to, to people of the ancient world and, and to their intellects that it should probably be caught. Um, John Markit kind of explains that more. Sometimes people say there could never be a miracle because a miracle goes against the laws of nature. But if you believe in God, then the law of nature just means the way God usually does things. A miracle just means God is doing something unusual. Usually God makes it so people can't walk on water. But if on occasion he wants to make it so that the people don't sink, when they walk on water, what's to stop him? That's why it's very important that we Christians not underemphasize the miracles of Jesus' life. Because if we do, we'll be undermining his claims to really being sent from God. That, sometimes you hear things, sadly, you hear them, um, sometimes you can hear them from There was a movie a couple years ago called Millions. It was kind of a cute movie about this boy who saw saints. And it was a pretty wonderful movie, except for one scene. And sadly, the scene can be heard, has been heard from pulpits at times. And it goes something like this. The miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves wasn't really a miracle. It was just that he got everyone to share the bread that they had. Now that, that may seem harmless. I've actually had family members say, I went to a church and this one priest actually said that. And the person really appreciated it because they were like, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to believe in miracles. I can believe in something reasonable. That that was this person's sentiment. And to explain, you know, that, that's really unfortunate that that was said to you because what they basically did is said, Jesus didn't do miracles, he was just a human being. And that... Totally, totally. is. Then it makes Jesus like all of these other religions. It's subtle. Maybe you don't see it all fall down. You don't see the dominoes fall immediately in that moment. But that's where it's going towards. So when we're talking about the miracles of Jesus, we have to be, we have to stand firm on them. Um, those Gospels are important historical documentation of the miracles that Jesus
3: did. Yeah. Am, I, am I right in thinking Remembering, in my recall, that Jesus said, uh, "Believe me. If you don't believe me, believe my miracle." Yes, or something to that. That's effect. exactly what
1: he says. Yeah. If you don't believe me, believe in the signs. Yeah, it's in the Gospel of John. All so, it's all over the place. Yeah. So he's kind of instructing us there. That's yes. It. Yes. Um, and it's it's just worth it's just worth meditating on. We hear those miracles so many times, so many times, and we don't. We don't ever appreciate how disturbing seeing a miracle might actually be. Um, Bishop Barron has a wonderful line on that. There's something, everyone understands what a wise person is. We have gurus that we might listen to, but someone who calms storms, someone who casts out demons, someone who heals people that are brings people back to life from their death, Holy buckets! That's that's <laughs> disturbing, and it happens three times in the Gospels. Uh, that we can't we can't just say, "Oh, well, that was just illness," or "That was just epilepsy." Um, that wasn't really demonic, or that there are things like epilepsy. Absolutely, there are. But there are also things like demons, and that's a thing. Other questions, comments? So we're, we're citing fact, they did miracles as proof that he was God. But I mean, there are other uh, figures in the Bible that did miracles, right? Yes. The Old Testament. You got, yes. You know, Moses and things like that. Yes. So I'm just saying, <laughs> there, it's 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 not it's not proof positive. Exactly. There are other figures. Exactly, and that's exactly why the Jews said. He's not God; he's a prophet. And you actually hear this a lot in the Gospels. People are saying, "Some said he's a prophet; some said he casts out demons by the prince of demons." And most people were just confused, like it's one of these two things: either he is the coming of another prophet, a mighty person, because it fits in what they understood about history, or he's demonic. And that brings us that brings us to the the the, probably the most important. If I was if I was in a conversation with um, someone, and I had one thing to share about Jesus that makes Jesus unique. It would probably be this one: his claim to be God, um, and not just any God, but the Jewish God. So this is going to tie up several things that we've already talked about here. Now we come to the most dramatic difference between Jesus and any other religious founder, or really between Jesus and any other person in history that has ever taken, excuse me, any other person history has ever taken seriously. Jesus said he was God. That's right. The 30-something carpenter's son from a small little town in Nazareth said that he was the eternal creator of the universe. He actually said John's Gospel, before Abraham was I am. Thus giving himself the name of the eternal, all-powerful creator of everything. Off to the side, I want you to write this means he couldn't have been Hindu. This means he could not have been Tell you a story of why
2: I'm having to write that down.
1: This means he could not could not have been Hindu. When it's a moment ago, well, here's the story. I was hanging out with some friends at a at a barbecue, and I was playing, uh, it was one of those um, like a band and barbecue thing, fundraiser for of bars. And, and the guy who was running sound for the for the band I was playing with, um, I struck up a conversation with him, and I don't know how. it it got to the conversation of Jesus. It became very quickly, it became a conversation about Jesus. Um, I think I was asking, how do you know this guy? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, do you go to church? And he goes, no, I haven't gone to church in a number of years. I was raised Catholic and I just don't, I don't believe. I think Jesus was really just a, you know, it says in the Gospels he was gone for 30 years. I I think he just went to to China and India and he learned this enlightenment and he came back And he was saying, when he was saying, I am God, he means, literally, this is what the guy said, I am God, and you are God, and she is God, and the table is God, and we're all God. And I think that's what, that's why Jesus, that's what Jesus was saying. But the problem is, if you know your Bible, you know that can't be what Jesus said. Because when he says, I am, he's not talking about the Hindu God, he's talking about the Jewish God. And when he says, before Abraham was, was I am, he's saying, I am the God of the burning bush. Which is to say, um, I'm not the ocean, and I'm not the sun, and I'm not the stars. I'm the guy that made the sun, the moon, and the stars. I'm not the God of the Babylonians. I'm the God of the Jews. I'm this guy. And we we take this so... I find this so beautiful every Christmas. Um, they don't even narrate this because it's just so darn obvious. But it's it's in the story. It's in the story. God sent his angel Gabriel to a town in Galilee in a town called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph and her name was Mary. And it's just taken for granted that they're Jewish. The whole story of Jesus presupposes the Jewish understanding of God. And it unfolds in the Jewish understanding, in the Jewish religion. And if this had happened in any other religion, we would not have clarity on this issue. What I'm getting at is, when, when I hear this detail, what you really start marveling at is, oh my gosh, God, you prepared us for Jesus by giving us the Jews thousands of years before. Because if it weren't for the Jewish religion, Jesus' words wouldn't ring with the clarity that we have. And his claim to be God would just would just turn into what this guy that was running sound for us was saying, "I'm God, you are God, we're all God." No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. I'm sorry, sir you you haven't read your Bible. It's clear you don't you haven't read your Bible because you would you couldn't make that claim if you knew what what we were talking about.
3: Yeah. I mean, what, what I think about that is that uh, I mean. Coming to that revelation is that he came in a specific place, mm-hmm. a specific square footage in the earth, yes and there he came. And yeah. it wasn't, and he came into our space, our yeah. time, our, and it's. Uh, when you think about it. So what this, your this person that you were talking to, he's. It's kind of an ethereal kind of oh. You know, somewhere, somehow, some way, it just happened. But we're saying, and like you're saying, it it was precise. It wasn't. It wasn't a an accident. It was intentional. It was planned, and and so it was brought about.
1: Yes. And that space was Jewish space. Yeah. You know, like it could have been Italian space, or what was going to later be Italian space, or it could have been, it could have been in what's later going to be north america right it could have been what it could have been all these other place, places but you didn't say that out
3: yeah,
1: yeah. Um, hindu would say history itself is an illusion because you and your consciousness is an illusion and the goal of the hindu religion and i'm not this sounds this sounds like i'm being unfair to them, but it's not like if you if you get deep into what they're saying is the goal of the hindu religion is to realize that everything that you see is, is just an illusion. And when you wake up from that, you see, you realize the reality that you are not even a person, that we are all the same thing. And history itself is a whole different thing. That, that's why maybe this is, um, you're familiar with this image. Right? Um, one of the meanings of this image is that history is a cycle. And it's reincarn- reincarnational. That's not Jewish history. Jewish history is, it's not reincarnational, it's a story.
3: There's a beginning, there's an end. This kind
1: this of history doesn't come from this worldview. Um, maybe that's. That's why the question of history is a fascinating one, given your, given your, given the question. You really ask the Hindu. Now, here's the real honest answer, though. If you ask an American who thinks they know Hinduism, what would Hindus say? Well, the average American doesn't know this or this, so they say it's all the same thing. We're all being, we're all trying to get to God. Again, that's not really, that's not what they were saying ever. It's definitely not. To
2: to
3: up for you, so. I did. I had a question. Uh, you gave a real life situation that apologetics could apply to. So
2: I'm wondering, <laughs> did how did you handle that? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. it Didn't work.
1: Um, like I, I think actually I put the guy off. It's a great. It's. A, I'm so glad you answered that because I was like I need to circle back and tell him how that didn't work. Um, I was I was a little bit of a nuisance to him, and afterwards I thought, man, I really think I I overstepped it on that one. Um, the, but I'll tell you it's because if we're into, uh, sharing the story I, I told him I remember sitting next to him while he was running, running the sound and I go you know what I think you should come back because God wants you home I said something like that and um, I was actually pretty I feel like that was the right thing to say but I feel like something I don't remember what I said next but it became a little bit more awkward um and I, at this point, I have to say I've, I've, I've just prayed, and and asked forgiveness for the, if I overstepped my bounds. So but I'm to pray that God used that weak um, element in however that that guy's life was. But John Mark also told me something once about apologetics, why he does apologetics. And I always, I, when I used to teach apologetics to seniors, I used to have John Mark come in, to come to my class, and he always used to give the same talk. Why do I do apologetics? He says. It's not to convince unbelievers, uh, because it never, it never really works to convince unbelievers. I do it for other, three other reasons. Number one, it's just an honor to speak on God's behalf. That was moving. Uh, just to speak on God's behalf is a privilege, and so I do, if for no other reason, I would do it for that. The second reason was to give believers a, an understanding that what they believe is not stupid. There's reasons for why we believe. And so I speak to build up believers. But the third reason was I speak not to convince the the unbelievers, but to take away the notion that being a believing person means that you're a sheep and that you're a fool. Um, And maybe I would add... I would speak on the behalf to make sure that they knew that Christians weren't jerks. I think that's why you do apologetics, so that people, so you can witness, as Keith said, uh, that Christians are not stupid. That this is not about being dumb to to follow Jesus, but it's also about that you can believe this, be intelligent, and be charitable. That's really why you learn how to do apologetics. And then for the soul that's hungry, man, it, it helps. And that's enough. That. Yeah.
2: And then you can say a couple of things there, church thoughts and, you know, cause I, I have had, uh, family members tell me that once you get more educated, you won't believe, Yeah. you know, and, um, it's so part of it, like what you're saying, the word to me though is more powerful is witness because when you give a personal witness. It's not you're not trying to get in a debate about facts or hmm. you know uh, who's right, who's wrong because once you get into a personal witness too, it's harder to tell somebody they're wrong because it's their personal experience too. But I think you do have to have reason behind it because you're right when you say just the sheep because that's usually what people think right. Christians are just right. somebody they're you know, close it uh, Karl Marx, you know said, mm-hmm. you know, uh, faith is just the drug for the masses, the masses. or whatever, or something like that, I don't yep. have to quote probably right, but basically saying for the you know dumb and ignorance, the way to make it feel good, right, right you know. Um, so I, I, I come back to though then when it says, Jesus said he was God, because you can read that and say it, but it's the fact that, um, and I think it comes down to whether you believe or not, is his resurrection. That proved. Right. That was his final miracle, like you said, yes. that proved what he said, who he said he was. Who else can die and come back to life? Right. <laughs> you know, uh, but that's where a lot of people say, oh, I don't believe in the resurrection. So yeah. hence, that's their hangup to saying, well, I don't believe in Jesus so and yeah. God.
1: And if they've, if they've thought about it deeply enough and they come to that conclusion, we got to kind of respect him. I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's the right conclusion by any, by any means. Yeah. Um, but I also want to show attention here, too. We've talked a lot in the last years about bear, you have to bear witness to your faith. You have to share your testimony. But the Christian thing, like I said the moment before, is not just something that bubbles up from within. It's something that God says from outside. And it matches what's inside <laughs> me. In that sense, you have to be careful not to give the impression um, You know, I've had this experience of faith, you have your experience of not faith, and all the experiences are okay because they're all just experiences of faith. Faith being emotions that bubble up from inside. Faith is, is different, Christian faith is God speaking and me having a graced response that's probably worth writing down because it's kind of a summary of the catechism. Faith is not just uh, feelings, it's not just a a religious feeling, but it's God speaking and me having a graced Response. Faith is not just a religious feeling. It's God speaking, and me having a grace response. In other words, it's God telling me and me saying, "I trust you. I trust you." And that's already a gift of God. Um, so when we're sharing our stories, it's. Imp- I think. I think we need to give the witnesses but I think we need to show how it's a dialogue between God and the soul. Obviously, we can't force anyone to have that graced response, but we have to articulate God's word. We have to articulate how God speaks. And we have to give people encounters in which they can, can hear God speak. In other words, reading scripture, mass, um, prayer. These, these things are, These things are important. Um let's let's take a look go a little bit further with this as we're approaching the end of our time. So Jesus says, I am before Abraham, I am. Now, what can you do with this? That's radically unlike what any religious founder would have said. That's unlike What do we do with that? That's radically unlike what any religious founder would have said. C.S. Lewis imagines what other religious founders would have said if you'd asked them, are you the creator of the universe? Socrates would have laughed at you. Buddha would have urged you to seek enlightenment. Confucius would have said something like, jokes which are in bad taste should not be made. And Mohammed probably would have cut off your head for blasphemy. I once talked to a non-believer, John Mark narrating now, who said that Jesus was a good guy, had some insights, but was a little neurotic. But calling yourself the full-blown the creator of the universe doesn't qualify you as neurotic. It means you're full-blown psychotic. If anyone says, I'm the eternal, all-powerful creator of the universe, you don't say, well, I disagree with you about that, but I still like your views on marriage, family, social justice, morality in general. Someone who thinks their God, with a capital G, is not someone you're going to give, is not someone who's going to give you good moral insights. But everyone agrees that Jesus has some of the most beautiful moral insights the world has ever known. Which means, he isn't psychotic. And remember, thinking your God isn't just an honest mistake a sane person can make. But if he's not psychotic, then when he says that he's God, he must be speaking truthfully, which means he really is God. Here's another way of putting it. Uh, Someone says, I am God, capital G, God of of the Jewish Jewish people. um, From a logic standpoint, we only really have two options: either this is true, or is false. Jesus makes it pretty simple. Like he claims this; it's very clearly attested that he claims this. So, from a logical standpoint, if we teach logic, we have it's, it's, it's either or. If he's true,
3: if it's true then he's different from every other world religion.
1: And it's and then everything he says goes into a whole different category. If he's false, he's either lying, right?
0: Yeah, yeah
1: lying. lying. Uh, <coughs> or he's insane. Um, C.S. Lewis says, or he's the Lord. So with Jesus, he's either the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. And there really aren't any other options when it comes to, uh, someone who says this is is, is one of those three things. Now C.S. Lewis points out, the one thing that you can't say about Jesus is that he's just a good moral teacher, which is what everyone wants to say about Jesus. We want to say, oh, sure, I don't agree that he was God, but I believe that the Sermon on the Mount was beautiful advice, and I believe that what the way he deals with the woman caught in adultery is amazing and merciful, and I think he's really wise in these other ways, but on this fundamental question, I disagree with him. But the kind of person that says this is, is either a lunatic or he's lying. If he's lying, you're never going to trust anything he says. If he's a lunatic, why would you trust anything he says anyway? Well, what's the point? Therefore, this is, this is the question that Jesus poses to us. Or to put it a different way, it's another story that you may recognize from the scriptures. He comes to the apostles and says, Who do, who do the people say the Son of Man? Is that title? Who do they say the son of man is? And it's in Matthew 16. Um, and they say, some people say you're a prophet, right? You're like Elijah, you said that. Because they're Jews, they think you do miracles, they think it's a big deal. Others say, you're a teacher. Some people disagree with you. And then he asks the really pointed question. But well, who do you say that I am? And, Jesus, and Peter says, I believe that you are the Messiah are the son of, of the living God and Jesus says blessed are you Simon, son of Jonah um, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my heavenly father in other words Peter you have a this is a grace response God is giving you an insight to who I am that you can't get any other way you're seeing me for who I am. And he says, on you, Peter, I will build this
3: church. On this, look how, look how powerful that is. The, the person,
1: the first person to recognize that this is true becomes actually the Pope. right? And that's where the church is born. The church is born of recognizing who Jesus is by what God says in a graced response and that's the beginning of the church and it all hinges on this question who is Jesus is he who he says he is the fact that people are martyred for this um, the fact that Jesus is martyred for this shows that they honestly believed it that means they couldn't have been lying. They may have been deceived, but they couldn't have been lying. Um, maybe another way to put it is, um, and that's why the, that, that phrase comes, that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, I for, now I, I always forget the numbers. Of the first, I believe it's 32 popes, 30 of them were martyred. Of the first 32 popes, 32 were martyred. The other two were exiled. And that means, and that's roughly 300 years, the first 300 years of Christianity, you didn't get rich. You didn't get famous. You didn't get all the girls. You didn't get the popularity for being a Christian. You got beheaded for being a Christian at different times, which means... And that is a beautiful, that's another moment of history where you're like, oh, thank God. Thank God for those 200 years of intense persecution. Because if it weren't for the persecution of those 280, you know, 280 years, you know, 300 years, I wouldn't be able to say with so much conviction. These guys might have, I, I don't think they were lying, you know. They may have been deceived, but that's, that's a different question. We'll deal with that. Um, when it comes to the resurrection but that's that's a beautiful gift and and think about that like could the people could the first popes that were being martyred could they have ever guessed that their blood was going to be the the engine for so many people's peace in their faith in Christ I, I mean I, how could they how could they possibly know about Sebastian and Miko 2,000 years later? And if God could do that with their suffering, what about my suffering today? Whose, whose faith will I be bolstering years from now if I suffer well? And am a witness to this? That that's a whole different way to think about the moment. So
0: you may have already answered this, but the other religions where people are willing to die? The
1: difference difference there is people die for things they, um, sorry, let me find find my words for this. Um, People die for crazy things all the time. People don't die for crazy things they invented. I'll repeat that. People die all the time for crazy things, but we don't die for crazy things that we invented. So in other words, you might you can have people that will fly planes into buildings because they believe things, um, and they've been taught things, and they believe that they are true. But when you're talking about the apostles, You're actually at ground zero of the faith right here. Which means, let's say that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. That means these guys must have been lying, right? And that means they went to their deaths knowing that they were lying. This is why the specifically not not just the, the martyrdom of all those early popes, but specifically <laughs> the martyrdom of the apostles, is is so important to Christianity. Because, for example, um, Bartholomew was skinned alive. That's how he. That's, there's there's statues of him like in, in St. John Lateran Church in Rome, where he's holding his skin. Um, you know, Jesus carries his cross, and Bartholomew's got his skin. And this is like he has the knife and skinned Now, if I was being skinned alive for something I knew was a lie, somewhere between the distance of my index or my middle finger and my forearm, I would have probably been screaming, this was all Peter's idea. He He said said we'd get rich (laughs) and we're not getting rich, but he never said that. He went the whole way. Now that's the thing, like thousands of years later, could you be (laughs) deceived into doing that? Sure but not ground zero, not ground zero. That's why when you walk into certain churches, you'll see traditionally on the pillars of the churches, you'll see symbols of each of the apostles' martyrdoms. Architecturally, that's very significant Um, because you'll have like the X that St. Andrew was crucified on. You'll have the upside down cross of St. Peter. You'll have the knife of St. Bartholomew. You'll have the sword that cut off. Paul's head. They're actually the architectural pillars of the building. Why? Because the martyrdom, what the pillars are to the church's physical structure, the martyrdom is to the structure of our faith. We will close with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your Son, for the gift of your plan of salvation history in which you prepared us to see and to hear your word, your word that was made flesh in the womb of Mary, and the, the Holy Spirit that inspired those first apostles to go to their deaths. And we entrust all of our loved ones in our own faith. And we ask for the, the same Holy Spirit to make us courageous, ardent, but gentle witnesses of the gospel Willing to follow you wherever your, your cross leads us, we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace. Praise the Lord, Lord is with us. thee. Blessed, Blessed art thou amongst women. and Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Hail Mary, Mary Mother, Mother of God, pray, pray for us sinners now and at the hour, or hour or of our, our
2: death.
1: Our Lady, Queen of Victory. Pray pray for Amen. Father, the Son, the Holy
2: Spirit.
0: Thanks for listening to The Movement. To find out more about Holy Family School of Faith's mission to lead others to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary, head over to our website at schooloffaith.com.